Hello and welcome back to the Miscast, where we examine the latest news, spicy brews, and strategy in CDH. I am your host, Drake Sasser, and with me today for the first time in quite some time yet again is my good friend, Mikey Hollihan. How's it going, buddy? It's going well. It's been a very long time since we did one of these, but a lot of things have been changing in the meta, and there's all the tournaments that have been popping up. I think we have a lot of new insight that we get to share with everyone today. Yeah, I mean, I... I don't know, I don't want to, like, understate it, but I really feel like CDH has kind of seen... Everything just kind of kicked into overdrive as far as tournaments go. Not only have there been, you know, multiple tournament organizers that have popped up. um, I mean, most recently, Star City Games is hosting, like, a... I think it's, like, a 5K in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... That, there's there's some issues around that, you know, whatever, and, and some of the logistics, things like, you know, no proxies is a tough place to be for sure in this community when we talk about the price of decks. But still, for that to be a step in in CDH is huge. I mean, if you had told me that's where CDH was going to be, you know, whatever, three, four years ago, I'd be like, you're, you're, you're on something because that's, that's just insane. But, I mean, it really seems like over the last, I mean, even just the last, whatever, six months to a year not only have we kind of proven that like uh, CDH functions as a tournament format, which was like not free. There's a bunch of people online that were like, blah, blah, blah. Are you kidding me? Multiplayer format. You can't do tournaments of that. And it's just like, why? You know, give me a good reason. Nobody actually has a good reason. They just, it's so wild to them as a concept. They never really like thought that it was going to happen, but we're really kind of seeing a widespread adoption. You know, I know there's some, conversations happening like i said with like seg you know I, i've heard of other big um tournament organizers like that making things happen you know monarch announced a lotus con that would be big playing with power has their invitational later in the year eminence has a whole suite of events we're really just seeing events like we've never seen before previously it was like one yeah. or two maybe big publicity events now it's just a flood literally every weekend there's something and it's not even like obviously some of the, like every weekend there's not like a 120 person event but like almost every other weekend at this point there is like he had the ccu event uh that was one that eminence ran over in la and that one had about 100 people meanwhile in atlanta there was another 128 person tournament that was being run the week before that we had uh cedh the one that was like up in the seattle portland area uh that one had another like 120 people like, it's crazy it's just every other weekend and these are all over the u.s it's not like they're confined in one area or anything which is also really cool because before it was like the northeast was the place where there were tournaments and now there is everywhere, and I think that's awesome, and it's really cool to see our software is helping spread that. A lot of different places are using it. I've heard Monarch has been updating their Squirebot a lot, so now it has a desktop application, I believe is what I heard. Don't quote me on that. I'm just not positive. Um, there hasn't been a lot of info on it. All I know is that they've been really revamping Squirebot and getting it ready for LotusCon. So just all really good signs. Like Having more options for software is always good because that pushes both sides to get better making things more accessible. That was always our goal at Eminence, and it's cool that it's kind of come to fruition with all the events that are going on. Yeah, I mean, that, that was something that you and I had talked about on this podcast kind of since the genesis of it, where we're talking about, you know, you need more than just the few tournaments we have because, you know, people were obsessing over those results specifically as being such an authority, whereas tournaments across all of Magic's history have always been about the, the numbers who who succeeds consistently over time that's how you build yourself into a hall of fame career it's not who won this event it's who had the most successful whatever decade and and that's just something that's very unique to magic as far as having a competitive tournament 
series of any kind that has gone that long. And that's what I want to begin to build for CD. You have to have that start somewhere. And who knows, maybe the, the mics of the world, the comedians of the world, these people, <laughs> you know, succeed time in time again. Uh, we'll stick with it for that long and we'll be able to you know, hold them up as bastions of, of CDH and kind of not just there succeeding since the beginning, but able to hold the, the test of time. That's something that is, I think, really important for magic. That's something when people talk to me about why I do what I do, why I put so much effort in. And sometimes it's not even for money. You know, like we don't get paid to do this. We don't, I, you know, I yeah. don't get paid for a lot of the work I do at playing with power. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on that isn't just directly on the clock. And that that stuff kind of comes out of like the the motivation for me where it's like i want to build magic to be what i what it has been before what it will be again what it continues to be for a lot of people and it's that's this constant in your life when things can go really bad you know there's a lot of been ups and downs in my life and i can associate those with magic sets you know like it's so cool to have <laughs> this thing across my entire life that's been my been my hobby and have people and in cards and all that stuff to associate these memories to. And I want to begin to build that that experience for commander players, especially, you know, more competitive commander players like you and I. So seeing all this come to fruition, it's a big moment, not just because it's pushing the format forward, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. It's going to be a, a pretty good segue, but also for my own like selfish philosophy, motivations, that kind of stuff, as far as what makes me tick in this in this space is very much about creating that environment where we have we have these tournaments and we have these things to look back on these things to develop the format and you know you make great memories out of it so super awesome stuff i mean i'm going to be attending more tournaments that that i can you know i can't go to all of them and i work most of the the mox masters events in the booth so i can't play all the events but getting a taste of of the ability to play these tournaments it's been a really good experience i've played a couple of the eminence ones and stuff so far and I've really enjoyed my experience, even though I did not do very much winning. And that to me is a, a sign of a really good product. Well, that's, you know, yeah, and you brought Essica, so you kind of added to that one. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, I'm not one to back down from a friendly wager. and uh, That's uh, that's where I was at. That's fair. But yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. Um, this is something I was talking about with Tori, who's part of the Scryberries, uh, with uh, my good friend and trusty secretary, Hellenium Gaming. Was the Tori asked us like why is it that you guys like TOing so much? Because we talked about how we did Smash stuff and now how we're trying to get involved with Commander. At the end of the day, it's just because you create these weekends where people just have so many fond memories. Whether it's that funny story about how Drake got blown out because he forgot how Underworld Breach and Demonic Tutor worked, <laughs> or it's about how like Alana and Ian have top sixteen for the nth time at this point because if they enter an event, they are probably top sixteening. It's like show me an event where one of them isn't in top sixteen, and then I'll ask you, okay, were they registered? Yeah, good luck. <laughs> yeah, good luck. No. Is this a tournament that even matters? Like, did they even decide to show up? Because they just did everything. <laughs> they play everything, and they just win constantly. So it's just, yeah, it's just kind of the 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 cadence of things. Yeah, no, I, exactly. I'm sick of it. It's just helping, and ulti- yeah, and it's just ultimately bringing these people together, uh, having it, letting everyone have a good time, and just kind of building up this narrative where we actually have people following the commander scene. Like for a while, it was always just kind of this joke, and if you weren't on Discord or Reddit. You had no idea what was going on. You didn't know the 60-person tournament that someone won happened. But now it's like we're actually getting coverage. People are following it. Uh, the bracket pages when tournaments are running on the weekends, and I look at those metrics, it has almost 5,000 people looking at them for like almost every tournament that happens. So it's all just really cool. Like We're helping build out this scene, and I'm just excited to see where it goes, especially if SCG starts picking things up. 
yeah yeah i mean the the more tournaments the better it's not really like a mutually exclusive thing i know there was some growing pains as far as that goes and people viewing one thing or another as competition but in reality like the c ch has grown enough and even the time i've been involved that you i mean monthly tournaments is not unreasonable tournaments multiple times a month also not unreasonable and you have the the alanas the the ians of the world that are going to play every single one you do three tournaments in a month it's not unlikely that they play every single one now you can't do that forever i mean i know as well as any grinder that you can't play everything forever it's just not possible but for the time being i i think it's very clear that there can be more there has been more and there will be more and that's really exciting and that's pushed forward cdh metagame development like we've never seen and that's kind of what we're here to talk about today is kind of more or less, I don't want to say like a sequel to the Timna Dilemma, but I think it's important to call back to things not only that we've talked about before, where we're, hey, here's here's a theory I've put forth and here's some information i put out there. Not just revisit that a little bit, but also talk about how things have developed since then, because we're really seeing, like I said, quite a bit of development, not just with new cards, but new approaches to the format and just new just deck building philosophies in general. And this particular time, uh, you know, you, we've kind of coined this as we're coming up on Mardu summer here. Uh, kind of just the rise of of Mardu decks succeeding, specifically relevant because it's sans blue. Now, this is something we've seen before. We've seen Mardu decks win tournaments. We've seen mono red decks win tournaments multiple times. That's kind of what spawned uh, Tim the Dilemma in the first place is like, hey... All these decks are just eschewing Timna, eschewing blue cards, and like it's pretty well known at this point that Mystic Ristic, some of the best cards, like when they go and they fire off and they work. Why, why are we seeing this happen? And that was kind of where we began as far as our exploration of what's succeeding in tournaments. And now we're, we're seeing that kind of develop even further with this. I mean, what's the what's the new deck? This Di Dihada Dihada. I don't know how to say it. Uh, Dihada, I believe. Dihada. At least that's what Zane, that's what Zane calls it. He's the one that got me and a bunch of other people on the deck, so I'll, I'll default to that <laughs> pronunciation for now till I'm works corrected. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that works for me. But we're seeing this kind of push to even in the blue decks. I mean, this is something that I've had conversations with, you know, some of our mutual friends with fairly recently. Is people looking to to throttle back? on on interaction specifically like counterspell stack-based interaction um and there, there could be a host of reasons for this right like either more creatures are threats and therefore you either want more removal or you just want to take out the stack interaction altogether or go faster like there, there could be a lot of drivers and i wrote a really long article series about kind of analyzing these kinds of shifts and you know a little shameless plug there you can check that out on the eminence website a little data-driven development <laughs> article but it, key, it very much keys into that when you're looking at these tournament results which is kind of what we're doing right that's how we're making this episode that's how we're having this conversation is we're looking at what's succeeding where are things going and why and that is really the data analysis that matters it's not so much what is this deck's win rate versus this deck it's what it's about what you know decks are succeeding this week and what is different about that from last week and in this case it's kind of in the, the month time frame but we're seeing these non-blue decks that reach for more of like white cards like the silences and that kind of stuff be be more successful and have more of a push and you know we're gonna do our best to talk about why we think that is and you know i i'm going to let you kick it off because you actually have played the deck i have not played a single game of the new dihada deck that is 100% something that you, Zane, and all those people have been working on. Um, so, yeah, tell, tell me about it. Tell me how it started. Yeah, so 
Odd is a deck that Dane's been looking at for a long time. He just hasn't been super active on it. Like, as soon as it came out, he actually was messaging some people about how he's like, I think this deck is cracked. I just don't have time. And that was a mix of, like, Eminence. Both him and I went through a little bit of a commander, like, trough where we just weren't really that interested in it. But then he started really attacking in the past couple weeks. And a lot of where everything started for us was looking at Rogsai. So... Zay and I both, like, it's no secret, we both think Bryant Cook had did, has done a very good job developing the wrong side deck. And I think a common misconception about that deck, and I think you can agree with this as someone who's played against it and has also played it a fair amount, is that while the deck can go extremely fast, its biggest asset is that it just makes a ton of mana, and you're using Rograk to turn on your free interaction spells for the most part. So, like, your Swats, your Fierces, you have your Mind Break Traps... Uh, and then you kind of, even though like you can just go for these early nozzles, for the most part, you just want to chill behind a value engine and then cruise on the fact you can keep developing your board and then you have like six pieces of free interaction in your deck. And Zane's idea was just, okay, cool, that's cute and all Rockside can do that. But for one, there's only six pieces. So even if they have a Ristic Study out, what's the chances that they draw one of those six pieces before I can cast my Silence? And two, all these other decks that don't have Rog that are just doing tap out Ristic Study turn one, if they don't hit their Force of Well, Force of Negation, Mind Break Trap, you just kill them. And so at first he was like, I'm not sure this theory is going to work. But then he started trying it, and you just kill these people. Because it's like, we're so scared. Like, we see a turn one Remora, we see a turn one Ristic, and then we're just, like, terrified. It's like, oh, we can't go off because that's on the board. And Zane's just laughing his way to the bank because he's just like, I'm just going to kill them. And I think, like, yesterday he had a game where it was in uh, it was double Ristic study. He just comboed through them and won because neither of them had their commanders out. So... Well, partial part, part of this is like talking about how Roxanne and those cheap commanders are really strong, as Drake and I have talked about before. The other thing is, just don't be scared. You have six pieces that can stop you. But if they developed a board where they had the early Ristic study, that means that you need to at least land Crypt Ristic. That's three of their potentially seven cards if they got those, like, the God Seven. So what are the chances that those four or five other cards in their hand are free interaction? You know, obviously you can sit here and be like, oh, well, I do that all the time. And yes, the potential's there, but we think that people are just acting too scared about that and just not jamming. So kind of what we're going with is with taking the best of Rockside where it's just you make this ton of mana and what something Rockside is very good at is going again. So it's like they'll wheel, try to do something, they'll do Breach, the Breach gets countered, they do a Monotic Betrayal. So we're taking these Mardu decks where we have all these silence effects like Grand Abolisher, Ranger Captain, Silence itself, Tithe Taker, using those to give us protection and we're focused more on just making a ton of mana and then going for it twice within the same turn. So it's like, cool, you stop my Underworld Breach. I don't care. I'm sitting on nine treasures because my Dahada makes a bunch of mana, and now I'm going to try again. Oh, you stop that? Cool. Uh, I guess I'll pass. So the next turn, you just do it again and again. And the way cards really supplement this well because, as I mentioned, like all these science effects, they just get around so much. It's like, cool, your Ristic City can draw you ten cards. If you don't draw that answer on the first two cards because I had to do something, I had to, like, Demonic Tutor, then Silence, you're dead. It doesn't matter how many cards you draw. Like, sure, there's Ottawara and Boseju, but, like, come on, like, once again, we're just narrowing it even further to the amount of specific cards that you need to draw to stop this. And that's kind of the general idea. Right, right. And, and this is something that, like you mentioned, I I know I've touched on before, as far as, like, we both understand that, like, Mystics, Ristics, cards like that, Esper Sentinels in the mix, uh, are, are format-defining cards. And you still get Esper Sentinel in, in these Mardu-style setups. But um, it, it, not enough people jam into them. And that has caused multiple different things to happen as a result. And it, the response to that, like you said, is kind of, hey, just try to just feed them. Just feed them, combo into them. It works some percent of the time. Or if you're not somebody that has the ability to stop an opponent from winning, maybe you should be feeding the person with the Ristic in order to give that person interaction. But not everybody's on the same page. And this is kind of where it harkens back to 
the the Tim the Dilemma a little bit where you need people to cooperate. I, you know, I've played a few tournaments myself, right? And in testing, the people I'm playing with understand that dynamic. They understand when, oh, I don't have any interaction, um, so I need to kind of intentionally feed the, the Mystics Ristics in order to make sure that we keep the other players that I can't stop right now from winning, keep them honest. You Either I got stopped or whatever. Like, I need to actually feed you cards. That way, if they attempt to win, you will have enough cards in order to stop that win and I get another turn. And, and people just are not really aware of spots like that, when to feed and when not to feed. They just kind of get overly conservative when you talk about a tournament setting because, you know, there's all this risk. You know, they flew to wherever and, you know, they paid this entry fee and now they're here and somebody's saying, hey, like, I need you to feed me cards. Like, of course you do. Like, I'm not going to... You know, I'm not going to feed you. And this is an experience I have personally had. My turn one Mystic Remoras were really bad in the tournaments I've played. And the players that refused to feed them just died to one of the other players. Like, it wasn't me winning. Sure, I didn't win. But they didn't either. You know, two of the other three other players should have been feeding me in order to do something. I mean, they clearly had nothing and died. Like, I had nothing to die because they refused to feed me. And so, instead of just being like, oh, they played a Remora, therefore the person that can operate best under it should automatically win, is a incorrect mindset. And the mindset that it seems like a lot of people have, either intentionally or unintentionally. And this is a good way to get around that. Having these silence effects where it's like, oh, nobody fed the fish? Okay, so nobody has anything? Cool. All right, well, uh, yeah, I'm just going to play a silence and kill you because I have all this mana. And you mentioned Dihada, Binder of Wills, Planeswalker. Uh, that has a minus three. So I want to I want to call that out. You said it makes mana. This minus three. Reveal top four. Any number of legendaries go from that top four into your hand. The rest go in your graveyard. You get a treasure for each thing in the graveyard. So basically, you don't have very many legendary things. So your minus three is just like plus four mana, right? It just pays for itself. Obviously, occasionally you want to bring a legendary permanent back. I forgot all the ones that are in the deck, but like one that actually comes up more times than you can think or that you would think of is uh, Gemstone Caverns is a legendary land. But yeah, for the most part, though, the way that the ability works, you mill four, you make your four treasures, and that also fills up for your breach. This deck can breach faster than any deck I've seen very consistently because at base, if you get the Hada out, you already have four cards in your bin. So then you're basically like one tutor away from snowballing there and going for it. But the deck just makes an obscene amount of mana, so a common play patterns like turn one, turn two, Tiada, into turn two, turn three, win. And usually when they go for the turn two or turn three win, they're able to do it twice uh, with the amount of resources that they have. Uh, and a common bait of this deck is it's a Planeswalker in the command zone, and so people are like, oh, I'm scared, I gotta kill it. If you kill it, that that's just playing into their game, and they just send it right to the graveyard, and it's like, cool, I have more Breach Fodder. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, killing it just puts it right in the graveyard alongside other stuff, your whole plan is to Breach anyway. Mm -hmm. yeah that makes some sense so yeah so i guess the deck you know you're able to obviously bank this mana that's going to be meaningful uh especially i mean people know very well with dockside how banking treasures like comes up and uh, that is something that we've seen kind of be the case as well as far as players that um you know what 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 wins out just having a density of cards versus a density of mana a lot of times in CDH, I mean, like I said, I think this isn't talked about enough, but we have specifically talked about it quite a bit, where cards are actually worth less than they are in, like, 1v1 formats and mana is worth more. This card kind of plays into that, where you have, instead of card advantage in the command zone, you have mana in the command zone, and it's just, I mean, it's very in-your-face staple. Instead of, like, ROG, where you have to do some work to make it happen, you either have your free commander spells or whatever, like a spring leaf drop, something like that. This very directly makes that mana. It makes those treasures. It makes those, you know, lotus petals is what they are. Um, and feels feels your graveyard. So now, you know, used correctly, um, 
having all that mana out of the command zone can overpower just card advantage engines. And that, frankly, that's part of what draws me to cards like Bergy and Urabras. I talk a lot about those too. But just these commanders that make a large amount of mana have an interesting space to me, especially when you talk about them kind of throttling back on interaction and just attempting multiple wins as a way to power through interaction. Those are common play patterns of those other Storm decks, but certainly having access to black and white cards is such a big upgrade. And, you know, we mentioned you even get interaction a little bit, like Silence, Ranger Captain, those cards function in that way. And so seeing this rise of, I mean, not all of them are Dihada, right? Like that's fairly throttled back at the moment, but we're seeing it even a little bit in the form of like Tivit and its success that it's beginning to see. Um, having like a commander that can make mana and as well as white cards we're seeing this kind of shift towards wait a minute maybe the interaction suite isn't the best when it's force of wills it's the best when we're talking about ranger captain we're talking about silences and stuff like that and i think that is really meaningful like certainly mystic ristic are better than esper sentinel most of the time but like as far as which which would you rather have some you know free counter spells or even counter spells that require a little bit of work uh because usually there's a little bit more going on or white cards you end up taking the white cards and that i think is what pushes these these decks that maybe don't even have blue at all or um just have blue alongside white to have a, a little bit more to offer as far as the the interaction setup goes uh, yeah for sure in addition to like the science effects, something else that people have been doing is focusing a lot more on defense grid. So they're running things like Goblin Engineer and Goblin Welder just to like cheat that into play. Because once again, you can have a million cards in the end. If you don't have mana up and there's a defense grid out, neat. Like you're still dead. So it's kind of like just limiting the amount of things that people can be on and just making it so that they can't interact. And it White just does a really good job at doing that. It's to the point where I've been losing a lot of games I've been playing with Zane, and not even just Zane, I had my first tournament at uh, Adam's Shop from Sadnaz. I had two of those games I started with a turn one Ristic, and I lost both of those games because someone just killed me turn two. And I was like, oh, cool, neat. <laughs> and yeah. just being able to go fast and asking the question aggressively first really just puts you in a lot better spot than people think. Because the way you answer this, right, is you mulligan to interaction. Okay, you mulligan to interaction. Now you're setting yourself behind. You can stop one of these players that is going, like, super fast, and then you lose to the next one. And like, I'm not saying that that is, like, a terrible solution. It's just you have to realize that there is a cost to that. Like, so many people are just like, oh, like, how do you lose to the turn two knots? Just always have Forcible in hand. It's like, one, okay, easier said than done. Two, if I'm mulling the Forcible in my hand, that means I'm pitching two cards in my hand to stop this win, and now I'm left with, like, three or four cards if I mulligan for that interaction, and then you just die. Meanwhile, the white decks are able to kind of get around that where they're, these proactive spells are also defensive because if you have a silence early, not only does it protect your win, but it also just says no to someone else winning before you, which is also important. Versus the counter spells, which while they can protect your win, they're not as aggressive at doing it. And these martyr decks are just really good at asking the question first and louder than the blue decks, I feel, at the moment. Right, and the silence is like we like we mentioned. Not only the interaction that is kind of unique, like a lot of times, like some of these decks can beat like one counter spell by just attempting another win. Whereas the silence is like, oh, you're you have a breach on the stack, and you're playing, just try again. Well, uh, how about you just can't do anything else this turn? Like it, it's not because it is a different effect than a counter spell. It operates sometimes better. Of course, sometimes it operates worse, but 
it operates better as a than a counter spell in the asymmetry like if you're trying to beat this kind of strategy the white cards are going to be better at it than a simple stop one spell here how about stop the rest of your spells is going to be more effective but um it's it also does the same thing in the face of mystics and ristics if you can jam this one thing through then it doesn't matter how many more times you feed the rest of the, the turn they're not going to have anything that works so you know obviously they're more sweeping and there's less of them. You know, you could play a lot more one mana, really restrictive counter spells than you could play silences. But I think we're getting to the point now where there's a density of them that you can reliably have one if you've been through quite a few cards. But the the real kicker is, like you mentioned, attempting multiple wins in the same turn. And and really, this is where it does kind of come back to what we talked about the Tim Dilemma, where it's like, all right, yeah, you beat that by mulling the interaction, but then you've only stopped one player. So what you actually need is multiple players playing blue and playing that interaction for things to go your way. And if you don't have that, then you're just dead in the water. You're not going to be successful in this game at all. And that is kind of what we've seen happen to stacks a little bit in this format. And that's why I really want to draw that kind of comparison because stacks operates the same way. If you're the only one putting stacks pieces in play in a pod, you're going to get blown out. But if you have an ally, if you have somebody else playing stacks pieces, your chances get a lot better. It, it requires that kind of cooperation. It requires multiple players to show up with that strategy. And if we see that happen to the blue decks as well, the force of will strategies, and you know, if multiple people don't show up with force of wills, then you're going to end up just getting destroyed as the one force of will player for trying to interact and just lose over and over again. So, you know, what's where what are you supposed to do? What's the correct direction? Or is that even fully in effect yet? It remains to be seen. But I think seeing this push is representative of we got some of that right when we were talking about what it takes to be a playable fair deck in this format, what it takes to be a playable stacks deck, and uh, how, you know, the the Belchers versus the Delvers, I think is what we did before, but like, yeah, <laughs> how, how the Belchers uh, warp what's going on in this format, and I, I think we're still kind of see that happen. Now, all this said, we have seen the Tim Necrom Blue Farm style strategies win multiple different events and and make deep runs have reasonable conversion rates beyond um what the like only top 16 appearance stuff that we had seen previously especially last time we made an episode and i I think it's important to call that out because i don't want to erase the presence of people playing that deck and people like representing that strategy it's still successful it still shows up it's still kind of performing about on how you would expect a top competitor to perform but i think the key from my perspective and you can weigh on this as well in fact i'm very interested in where you you stand on this but the keys for me is the players that are successful with these tim necrom style strategies are the players that are very good at getting the rest of the table to cooperate they're the people that can leverage those politics to be like hey if you don't feed this if you don't answer this if you don't whatever like they can they're constantly willing to be table talking and trying to get another edge and trying to convince the table to work with them too much success like they're good at getting the table to do that they're not just saying hey you need to answer this they're making a full case they're being you know persistent about it they're being effective about it and they're getting their way and as a result of that from what i've seen they're successful with these blue style slower strategies yeah i definitely seen that a little bit it's one of those things where it's like the tnk player and i'm also fully guilty of this as well as someone who plays the deck it's like i'm sitting there with my timna and my crom 
And I'm just like, yo, you got to focus on the rock side. I swear. Just look at how much mana they have. Meanwhile, I have like 10 cards in hand. Like, <laughs> um, for whatever reason, like that deck and Tibbet is also now falling into that gap. Like we're seeing a lot of Tibbet. And I think it's a similar reason why we see a lot of TNK for one good colors. Um, but it's just, you have this perception that you're everyone's friend. It's like, I'm playing the fair deck. I'm not playing Rogsai. I'm not just trying to nause you and wheel into oblivion and kill you. It's like, I'm just trying to sit here, draw a card, stop a win or two, and then, you know, maybe I'll I'll go off third, and it's fine, right? And these decks just get away with murder. Like, I see it all the time, especially Tibbet. Like, people are just like, oh, yeah, it's just Tibbet. What's going to happen? And then, they're like, uh, Demonic 2 or Time Seed, you're dead. And it's like, oh. Okay, shuffle up, next game. <laughs> it's just hilarious to me. It's just these decks where people are just like, oh, those commanders are more on the fair side. You're just able to get away with a lot more. And that's kind of where, you know, going back to the Mardu stuff and also like Jund and like those types of things without blue, they just don't care. They just don't listen. They jam their win. And it's like, cool, you drew three cards. You're still dead. <laughs> like, congratulations. Here's the defense grid into breach. You're welcome. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I, I've talked a little bit about this before, but never in a formal capacity. I don't know, maybe I, you know, maybe I should write a full thing on this. But I actually have a lot of thoughts on that kind of topic. Not super what this episode's about, so I'm not going to be too long-winded about this part. Especially because there's a story I want to tell you about the whole, you have ten cards in hand and you're trying to deflect thing. Um, but the I, I've noticed a trend, and this is actually true in 60-card formats. I've seen it as well. I just didn't really think about the implications of it in, in CDH. But... Players are very emotional. I mean, Magic's an emotional game, so that's just going to be true. But players are very emotionally attached to what they lose and don't lose to. And so players are consistently willing to make plays and make deals and whatever, cooperate with the, the TNK Tibbets that appear to be doing something relatively you know tame and fair, quote-unquote, where they're just drawing a little bit of cards over multiple turns. And you can convince yourself, oh, that's not that that uh strong i can stop that from happening whenever i want they're only what is it two cards okay i don't care you can do it again next turn four cards wow but like if a rog side deck puts a wheel on the stack you're like okay that's seven cards i need to stop that i need to stop that from happening it's it comes from this emotional kind of um reservation as far as what you are not willing to lose to you don't want to just feel like a fool by tapping out and then just getting combo killed by rocks. So you're going to hold up mana every turn. Make sure you have this counter spell up every turn, denying your own development, hamstringing yourself, like basically being like, no, I will not get got by a really quick rock side kill. I'm, I'm not going to lose to it. I'm not going to have egg on my face. I would rather lose to the blue farm player who won after eight turns of doing basically nothing because that's kind of on me for not attempting a win earlier, even though I wasn't even developing my board because I was too worried about the rocks. You see, it's easy to fall for your own logic where you're like, oh, I don't want to lose to rock side. So I'm going to hold up mana and I'm going to die on turn 10 to this blue farm player that's able to operate their entire plan because nobody else is doing anything um, because you're just so scared of losing to this rock side player. So it's all about what you are choosing what you lose to. And a mm -hmm. disproportionate amount of people are okay losing to Blue Farm because it takes so long, because it looks so fair and it's so incremental that they're like, oh, you know, they kind of earned it. They did all this work over all these turns instead of that. Yeah, it, it feels a lot, yeah it feels a lot better than when you just die turn two and it's like, oh, neat. <laughs> Guess I should have held up interaction. Even if it wasn't reasonable to hold up interaction, you still have that entire round. You know, you now have an hour to sit and think about how you should have held up interaction when that's not, that's results oriented. It's not true to what would yeah, be yeah. the most matches over time. So you end up 
with that effect, and, and that is where the Tivits and the Blue Farms, I think, also get a lot of points, is as far as making them have it goes, a lot of people that do show up with Force of Wills and their counterspells are going to just hamstring themselves the entire game until you get to the winner's pods just to try to stop you from winning because they don't want to be the egg on their face, died on turn one, turn two, because they didn't hold up interaction. And they'll view it as their fault. They'll view that as a misplay. And that's may, may or may not be true, but it's what happens. And this happens once again with people just not feeding remoras as well. They're just not going to because they're like, I don't want to draw you cards because we've all seen what happens when the remora player draws 10 cards, but then the player that just operates the best underneath it, well, that player's sitting there paying for remora just dies. So the players that can convince the table to cooperate with them and that and really evoke those emotions of not losing to this combo player i think those are the ones that are the most successful with those slower tivet blue farm whatever winota is kind of in this camp with those kinds of decks because they're able to get players to cooperate where from my experience if you don't say anything they don't cooperate because they just assume you have it rolled up and you're trying to trick them so that's mm -hmm. i think a were a noteworthy point in favor of the force of will decks is you can get some table buy-in just by showing up with that and not something that kills really fast but to some extent i mean the the storm bryant cook posse community is very well known for the just kill them that's a a big a big point in the rog side dehada favor as well right where it's just like okay you all want to sit there and just do nothing. I'll just attempt multiple wins while you're sitting there, whatever it is you're doing, being scared, playing scared. I'll just attempt multiple wins and kill you. And that, that works some amount of the time as well. Like that is some amount of the time. They're only going to have one or two pieces among them. And that's it. Rolled up. Game. Got them. Killed them on turn two yeah. anyway. Don't care. Yep. Also on that note, um, just something I wanted to mention because... <clears throat> Our event, Silicon Dynasty, was beginning of the year. It was like second or third week of January, and then CCU was also a West Coast event. So obviously a lot of overlap in players who went to these two events. Silicon Dynasty saw a ton of stacks. A ton of, like, Rog Tev was a really popular deck for that area. Insert other stacks deck here. This this tournament had almost no stacks decks. And talking to some of the guys from, like, the LA and SoCal area, all of them were like, yeah, we realize stacks is bad, just make them have it. And they all registered with, like, Jund, Mardu decks... Uh, like faster and agile decks, kind of like the one that you and Zane worked on, where it's just a bunch of good cards. And you just saw this queer meta shift where they're just like, yeah, we were idiots. We fucked up at Silicon. And now we're ready to start asking the question and have these leaner decks that just actually try to win instead of stacks decks that are just kind of trying to not lose. And I thought that was a cool development because I knew that area was very high on stacks and they were instantly just like, yep, we get the joke. We learned. You East Coasters came over, fucked us up in a tournament, and now uh, we're, we're ready. And the, the meta was literally night and day. It was really cool to see that transformation and hearing people talk about it. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's what happens in a, in a pressured developing format, right? Is you have people that show up with this thing because there's a bunch of tournaments. They're so like, okay, I'm going to show up with this deck I think is good. They get mushed, and they're like, all right, well, next tournament's in two weeks, and uh, I'm not doing that again. So, you know, that the ability to learn from your experiences, make adjustments, and show up with a completely new look. Uh, at the next tournament is unique now to this CEDH we're experiencing where there's such a density of tournaments that something like that's possible because it's also very possible that you know if the next tournament instead of being two weeks later or whatever it was 
being is six months later all those stacks people are sit down and just like yeah we all just got unlucky like come on like what are the chances we'll just have to do a little bit of refinement and maybe some of the matchups we lost and we'll try it again in six months and whatever like it's easy to forget exactly what happened and not be as hasty to make changes uh for your next event when there isn't another event in such a long period of time you kind of get the opportunity to get talked out of your own experiences that you had uh over the course of that time Mm -hmm. well uh a, a quick anecdote about you mentioned earlier the the kind of blue farm tivet players getting away with murder because they have like all these cards in hand just do all this stuff and they're like I've seen Ian do this a ton where he's just like has all these resources and he's like, yeah, they're the threat. You have to stop them. Uh, I was in a pod with Lauren, the MTG hot dog himself uh, at Punt City. And there was a Rafine player that would kind of had their thing going. They were just like triggering Rafine for like a ton, conniving just a ton. And uh, they were kind of trying to run some of that gambit. And at, at basically every other turn cycle or whatever it was, I was just triple checking everybody's cards in the end because I don't want to lose track of that. And so I was constantly like, how many cards in hand? How many cards in hand? How many cards in hand from every player? And so I was sitting there like, you know, I had like one card in most of the time. Like I was playing Eska, but X unplayable, etc. But the Rafine player was trying to put some heat on one of the other players. And they were like, yeah, I, I, I don't have anything. I've looked at all these cards, but you know, I just don't have all these things and whatever, whatever. And like, I, the entire time I was tracking cards in hand and I was tracking all the cards that were drawn. I was like, yeah, you've seen like, I think it was like 12 or 15 cards off of Rafine. You have your pick of those. Like that's close to like a Necro for a bunch. Like, I don't know. I think you're doing okay. Like, yeah, I was like sitting there like actively deflecting some of that and using like whatever, all this selection, all these cards in hand as like a big motivator. And it shut that player up pretty quick. And so after the fact, Lauren came up to me, he's like, you know, I never had anybody do that in a pod where they just like constantly keep tabs on everybody's cards in hand and that way they know kind of how much advantage they've worked through how much more there is to work through how many resources they should have and all that kind of stuff and to me that that's that came as a little bit of a surprise that like he himself doesn't do that and has not experienced other people doing that and i think shows a big discrepancy between what 60 card tournaments look like and um you know commander tournaments look like because the best players in the world, the John Finkels and stuff like that, they can track that information without even asking. I, I don't have a brain for that. Like, I don't have the, I can keep track of your cards in hand without. I can get close. I Like, I, you know, I can usually be like, you should have four or five cards is like usually what I'm like. But especially with three other players, like, I need to keep tabs on that. And I don't have time to sit there and process every turn you've taken, like a chess match log or whatever. So... It is surprising me that other players don't keep track of that information, especially if they're deciding to feed a fish Ristic or whatever. It's like, okay, you've drawn three cards off your fish, and uh, it seems likely that there needs to be one or two pieces of interaction over the next turn cycle if I want to live and get another turn as the player not attempting the win. I don't think seven cards in hand is actually enough to reliably produce that especially as far as free counterspells go. You mentioned how few of them there are. So I should feed, even though there's seven cards in hand. Yeah, it means that I might lose, but now all the other players see this player drawing cards and can be like, okay, well, maybe now instead of attempting a win, I need to stop the Mystic player from winning instead. And you can kind of, as the player with nothing going on, you can kind of control the texture of the game by either choosing to feed or not feed and use that to leverage getting another turn and who should interact with who and stuff like that. And people don't really seem to be thinking about those things when they're playing. Yeah, it's one thing to think about. I mean, I get it. There's a lot to keep track of. 
but they don't seem to be thinking about, you know, who is the threat? What needs to happen for me to even get another turn? Especially if I'm not attempting a win right now. And, and, and that I can go into even further as far as what happens when you're trying to assess if it's time for you to attempt a win or not. And so it's surprising me that, that nobody's ever done that, especially you know, Lauren, somebody who's played quite a few uh, commander tournaments. And that's just not something that's part of the culture is to kind of keep track of that um, at all times. I know on, on webcam you do it with like dice just to make sure nobody's cheating. But like, I mean, that's part of it. You get that as a benefit. Doing it in paper and in person is you get to make sure no one's just drawing cards randomly. But like, also it just, it matters for the who's the threat conversations that seem to be had all the time with no other information, just board presence. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of this too is just people aren't used to because like most people who are playing CDH right now, they started in a casual setting and then they started to play some tournaments and there's just a lot of basic heuristics that people don't get. Like I'm even seeing this in one piece. So me and my friend, uh, Steve Stillman, who used to be a grinder a bit for uh, modern <clears throat> and legacy, whenever we're playing games against people at our locals, we're always asking them, okay, how many of these 2k counters did you use? Or we're looking at how many blockers are in their bin and things like that. And people always look at us like we're crazy or trying too hard. It's like, no, like we're trying to win. And these are things that we need to be doing in a tournament. And I do think it's funny that Khmer players often overlook this. And I think that's part of the reason why people are so scared of playing into Ristics and Remoras. Cause it's like, imagine if people start playing into them more, but after they, or before they start playing into them, they're like, Oh, let me see your graveyard. And they see after, uh, after a wheel, they're down the Fierce Guardianship, they're down the Force of Will, and the Mind Break Trap. It's like, okay, so now there's Pact Negation, SWAT, Misstep. Like, that's about all that you need to play around. There's only three cards, and it's a 100-card deck. So I think people would benefit a lot if they started taking those extra steps and really seeing what was discarded, what was used, what was it used on, and things along those lines. Because uh, something else, too, is if someone blows a counter spell on something that you don't think is that scary, that usually says that they have more than one. Right. Um, you know, and things like that. And people are just really, uh, like oblivious to that. I think just like checking what's used, what's available and things like that would really help them get some more wins. And that's really kind of what this whole Marduk summer thing is capitalizing on. Just there aren't that many answers. So on wheels early and you see that the table's down two collective free pieces of interaction. Now the things they have to play around went down from like 15 to like, you know, 12 or something like that. Yeah. I mean, th and that was really kind of when Mindbreak Trap saw it's just like, surge of popularity which is in my time i mean i remember when kai first mentioned it now I, I died to it like two games in a row and i was like have have we just all been missing on this is this card just messed up yeah. and the answer is just yes the answer was just yes it's really rare that happens but like i got blown out two or three times by it and was like this card just look messed up is it really this messed up what is going on and the answer is just yes like everybody that's playing blue should just have a mind break trap in their deck because the card's just that messed up it just comes up it's going to work, especially in an underworld breach world. It may not work against Thoracle all the time and, you know, whatever. Now you have to start thinking about that as far as what matters in the face of fishes and Ristics. But breach is still the best win condition in the format. Everyone that calls Thoracle the, the way to win is dumb. It's it's underworld breach. It's always been underworld breach since underworld breach has been in the format. Came in the same time as Thoracle did. And, yeah, Mindbreak Trap's just a card that works most of the time in some way or another. Either you can constrict them on cards in Graveyard you can try to catch the brain freeze. You can, you know, maybe catch the the breach itself because they have to cast the LED first, and then they want to tutor for the breach or whatever, whatever that looks like. My is just messed up, and zero mana spells are messed up because the 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 fishes, the ristics, the esper sentinels, those are the best ways to fight all these unfair decks. If you're a fair deck, and you do that with free counter magic, because 
as you mentioned, like those are things you track. Force of negation, force of will, fierce guardianship, pact of negation, you know, <laughs> mind break trap. Have all these cards been used? You know, if so, what is there, a mental misstep? Okay, I don't need to worry about anything. And mm-hmm. that is a big part of the equation. And with players that are not used to tournaments, because I mean, once again, we, we talked about at the beginning of this episode, tournaments are relatively new uh, as far as the density of them goes and the accessibility of them goes, because previously in-person tournaments, you had to like fly really far distances or whatever. But like having online tournaments now, tournaments kind of getting a huge surge in the local level. I've seen a ton of shops around me having local tournaments. Commander players that were specifically commander players and kind of just oopsed into CDH as a result of their uh, group, like their play group powering up, they are experiencing tournament kind of cadences and heuristics for the first time in probably one of the hardest spaces to do it. CDH tournaments require you to track so much more than even 60 card does if you're trying to be optimal about it. I'm talking about cards in hand. I'm talking about, you know, no, like, is anybody doing anything they're not allowed to do? Tapping mana wrong, paying for things that is not possible. Like, tracking all the normal stuff from your opponent, but also you have three opponents. Also, the lines and all of the decision trees that are going on are so complex and wide that it's hard to analyze what the implications of each decision that your opponents make is it's hard to play an optimal game of magic in just normal 60 card setups in cdh it's nearly impossible and so i think that you know not only these players inexperience with respect to what you care about when you're playing a tournament is But there's also so much more of it that even trying to get them to start would be just too overwhelming. Like, if you have to ease into that kind of stuff. You can't go from being a kitchen table casual that just, like, worries about playing your cards correctly and remembering to attack and remembering to play your land or whatever into being able to be completely plugged into a game, tracking, you know, who's ahead, who who needs help. You know, what, who's your ally in a game? Who's your ally this turn cycle? What needs to happen for you to get a, a, a turn? Also, don't mess up your cards. Also, make sure your opponents aren't doing anything illegal. Like, you just can't make that leap from A to B there without a ton of intermediate steps. And there are going to be a lot of players that really feel that when they're playing a tournament. Either through mental exhaustion, they start making some mistakes. I mean, even I felt it. You, you referenced the the under uh, Underworld Breach. I just didn't demonic tutor for Brain Freeze or whatever. Like... That comes from yeah. some amount of that adjustment where I just, you know, it's not like I don't know that Demonic Tutor grabs Brain Freeze. I was just shot. My brain was just shot from trying to keep track of so much stuff and get myself to that position to begin with. I just ran out, ran out of juice. And that happens. It's something that I talk about in coaching all the time. And it's something that is going to be the case and continue to be the case in CDH tournaments that exist right now. Yeah, for sure. I definitely can see that. <clears throat> So as far as how to how to change this, right? If you're if you're sitting there as someone that feels spited because every time you play casual, because like this is somewhere where I kind of was when I'm just like, you know, playing with my play group, testing, and they they understand what needs to happen for them to get another untap. They understand when to feed and when not to feed and all that kind of stuff. And you expect things to play out that way, and then you go and play a tournament, and people play more conservatively than they need to. They play scared. And as a result, you on your more fair deck is not as successful. In my opinion, there's like two approaches. There's like two things that you could realistically do to fix that 
that you have control over. The first is get more politics involved. I think if you are frustrated that people aren't feeding your fish and all that kind of stuff, either change your politics strategy or you know take notes from, from the Ians, take notes from the Mikes, take notes from the Brian Kovals, those kinds of people that have succeeded with these kinds of fair decks. What are their, what are their in-game conversations sound like? Can you mimic that? Can you parrot that? When they're ahead, how are they kind of throwing the heat off themselves? When they're behind, how are they getting people to cooperate and, and to what extent? Those kinds of things you need to be paying attention to. And that, you know, there's tournament footage out there. You know, you can go back, you can watch, you can see, you can hear. And that is, I think, a big deal for CEDH for that reason, is you can take notes from what those players do to see how to get people to cooperate more often. Now, you can't not get everybody to cooperate all the time. People are still just eventually going to be like, nah, not doing it. And that's a risk you take. That's part of CDH. Like, people are going to throw games to each other fairly often. They do it. It happens. And there's only so much you can do in a multiplayer setup about it, That especially once politics aren't working. You're basically out of tools to convince people to not throw games away. But you have control over the politics that you state, especially if you see a game playing out that is not favorable to other players and you need to initiate that conversation. And if you have the bandwidth to do it without making misplays, that's going to be a big deal. But keep in mind, A, it, it costs bandwidth. B, how do you do it? Like, if you are not used to involving the, like, deception social aspect, find people that are. Take notes. Or you can join the Make Him Have It team. You can join in on Mardu Suburb, sleep up some Tejada, and be like, all right, I don't care if you don't cooperate. I'm just going to kill you. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, and hopefully it works more often than it doesn't. And it, from what we've seen, it does some amount of the time. Yeah, it's been it's been working enough to where uh, I have almost given up on Armix Crom. It's just I don't think it's the speed that it needs to be, and I'm going back to Winal and I'm going to start joining in on the fun. It's just I, I I'm not giving up. Blue. I I <laughs> this is like Drake and I've talked about multiple times where it's like the gap between blue and white is getting a lot closer. But I'm just not ready to give up the blue cards. Call it, uh, Shawnee, aka Jamaican dude from Playing with Power, calls it. It's a crutch, but it's a crutch I'm not willing to get rid of yet. And maybe I'll keep losing to these martyr decks. And I haven't been Zane in like two and a half weeks. But you know, uh, I'm gonna try to get back in the saddle with Anal and try be back in this force and to habit camp because I've been just blown away. Like more and more people are picking up this mentality. The Jun decks and the Martyr decks are doing really well. And these fair blue decks, if you're not good at politicking, as Drake said, like you just kind of die within our, like, even if you have interaction, once you get silence or the defense grid comes out and there's all these ways to cheat out defense grid now with the goblin welders and goblin engineers uh, tech that people are starting to do, it's just really hard to keep up. Um, and that's kind of for me. Like even as, as a Grixis player, like my Grixis decks are, they have a lot of interaction in them, but they, they were made to go fast and be like turn three decks. And I'm sorry, I feel like turn three is just too slow to start putting your first win attempt on the stack. And then if you keep interaction to get to your turn three, you usually don't have the resources to win. And it's been a very interesting spot to be in. And people can call it inbred and all this other stuff. But looking at the tournaments that have been happening recently, they all kind of come down to the same thing. And they're ending turn three, turn four pretty consistently. Obviously, there's outliers, but it's this make it have them team is just killing people. And it's hard to deal with, especially if there's two decks that are on the faster side in the pod. Even if there's two more controlling decks, they just can't keep up. Yeah, you stop I mean, the first one attempt, maybe you stop the second, then you lose to the third. Like, you just can't keep doing it forever. Yeah, I mean, to your point, I I remember one of the more recent Mox Masters finals was won by this Thrasios Darko deck that over the first turn, 
there was like uh, I think a fight over a Mystic Remora and a fight over a Ristic Study or something like that, or it might have been two Mystic Remoras, but basically like multiple players attempted to do the Mystic Ristic thing and got countered, and then the Thras Dargo player was just able to win on turn two, just able to fire it up because everybody used a bunch of free interaction to stop these Mystic Ristics from happening in this spot where there's four blue decks. That, I, I think there was four blue decks at the table, and it, it, it caused this, okay, you know, I was saying in the booth, I was commentating this match, and I was like, yeah, all right, strap in. We're going to be here for quite a while. It's just a bunch of interactive decks. They're just going to sit there and wait and bide their time, build up resources, and fire it off. But, I mean, this Thrash Dargo deck, after, you know, they saw everybody jam a bunch of stuff on turn one, they're like, okay, well, you just used a ton of stuff. Let's hope you don't have a way to stop this. And and they did. They didn't. People used all their interactions, stopping the Mystics, Ristics, Card Advantage Engines from happening and just died. And so, like, I think there is kind of an issue there when you're talking about you're the player playing the Mystics and Ristics. Not only do you have the potential to just not draw well off your Mystic or Ristic and just die, but also when other players are just understanding of the power of those cards especially in a setup where everybody's playing a fair deck and aggressively stop you from having that it opens the door for the players to win the game that you know otherwise wouldn't have attempted a win there and so it's an interesting problem to solve because like okay in if your hindsight's 2020 obviously you don't want to lose the game so you don't counter the mystic remora but how many times in the future that you let that mystic remora resolve are you just going to die to that mystic remora because it's so powerful and that is hard to tell and it's not clear how often that matters. And it seems like there's sway back and forth among a bunch of other players, either just not countering it because they just, you know, whatever. They're just not going to counter it. I'm going to try to play through it. And that may involve just playing nothing or stifling your development a little bit or paying for it in the case of Ristic Study, what have you. Or do you fight over it and then potentially leave yourself just shields down against a, a win attempt? The best approach is not known. And I've seen people get punished by both approaches. And that's, every time, it's pretty bad for the Mystic Remora player in these tournament setups, right? It's like either people are just hamstringing themselves to not feed you and you just die to the player that operates best underneath it, or people just use all their stuff on your stuff. You're like, okay, I guess. And then uh, die to the player who's just next in turn order or whatever. So Yeah, it's I, definitely yeah, I don't weird. Know it, it, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was going to say, I, I don't know either, because it really is a 50-50, because... You know, do I think those people in Mox Masters were wrong for countering that early Ristic? Absolutely not. Like, a turn one Ristic is scary as shit. But, you know, when when we're playing with all these extremely powerful cards, it's just kind of wild, because then you you counter the turn one Ristic, and now you're just dead to the next person. And, like, obviously it's impossible to really uh, count this, but, like, this is the play pattern that these Mardu players, like, saying specifically, are really capitalizing on. It's, like, people turn one... And I'm guilty as this too. I play a Crom deck. Do you know the amount of times I kept a hand was like, this is good enough because I tap out for turn one Crom? And that's just what they're praying on because they're like, neat. You tapped out for this value engine. Uh, I'm going to put my win on the stack. And if I don't put my... And even... It's like either have the value engine and you're tapped out, which is fine for me because I get to go off and win, or you ate a piece of interaction, which is just even better for these proactive decks. So it just puts you in this really weird bind where it's like, obviously these Ristic studies, Remora, Sentinels, Croms, whatever, it can be scary. But then these, like, faster decks are just really just trying to ask the question as soon as possible. Just kind of get the profit one way or the other, because it's like you're tapped out, so you only have so many cards that you can draw into that stop them. Or you eat a piece of interaction, like, haha, guess what, nerd? Here's the, here's the Spellseeker turn one for my Anala deck. I guess I win. And it's just really weird, and I don't really know how to balance it either, because 
like I said, like I think it's 100% right to counter the turn one Ristic. But then sometimes you die because you did that. It's just very weird and can be kind of frustrating at the, at the moment. Yeah, and, and I think part of the pain, too, like I said, this comes back to the emotional thing for me where losing to Ristic feels so much worse. Because it, it, it feels like you're getting stacked out, right? It feels like every time you make a move, they're drawing cards. You're watching painfully as they draw one card at a time into a win that you're letting them have by just trying to play the game. That feels worse to players than being like, no, stop that from happening. Oh, darn, someone else had a win. Okay, fine. Like, it, even though a lot of times the Tim Necrom stuff is like the quote-unquote good guys, the Mystic Ristic stuff doesn't always label you as a good guy because of that experience. Because of the experience these players have where they kind of feel like they're getting stacked out even though they're allowed to do their stuff, they're just kind of writhing in barbed wire while they're doing it. It, it. it creates that emotional response to the Mystic Ristics that I think has a big impact in the moment as far as not wanting to lose a tournament match to that again because it feels so bad. They would rather just put the shields down and, and copium that the next player is not going to have a win. And, you know, that's a fine approach to take. And I do think that's very much subconsciously or consciously how things play out in their head when they're debating whether or not to counter the Mystic Remora and use their only piece of interaction on the Ristic Study or whatever is what do I want me losing this match to look like? And it, I, I would rather lose because some player did have the win than lose because I didn't let this Ristic resolve and then my counter spell is not worth anything three turns down the line when they have 10 extra cards or whatever. So... And that's a tough spot to be if you're trying to play fair. Like, obviously, Timda is so much more tame and is not something that the other players, it feels like their fault. Like, when you're attacking with a Timda, yeah, if you don't block, it's your fault. But most of the times, like, you don't have a blocker anyway. So it's just like, okay, fine. You got a card off me. Sure. You had to work for it. You know, you cleared my board or whatever. You attacked me. Like, okay. You worked for it. It wasn't me just casting my spells that made things snowball. It was... They took a bunch of turns, it took a bunch of time, and they attacked. So fine, they did a bunch more work. And it doesn't evoke that same emotion winning from cards from Krom and Timna as it does from Mystic Ristic Sentinel. And I think that's an important differentiation to highlight because they often show up together. And your experience of winning over time, this is something Kobol's talked a lot about as far as you know, talking about his success on the Timna Krom style deck where we've seen no one else have that same level of success and level of consistency is he just constantly even when he can make win attempts just constantly is looking to play the good guy and make take more turns draw more cards with Timna until the advantage is overwhelming and he even says like yeah I, I i don't play to win most turns i'm playing with Tim Necrom. most of the time i'm playing to keep playing because i will just win as a byproduct of drawing my cards from Tim and Krom and what have you and i think that's that was an important moment for me to understand why Tim Duncrom is so successful uh, at not just like tables where everybody knows what's going on, but in tournament tables as well. And so ultimately, you know, part of it, I think, is politics. Part of it is understanding, you know, that players are going to uh, react emotionally to Mystics, Ristics, and stuff like that. And maybe you even need to hold it for a turn just to like let players get more mana available or something. You know, there there is going to be more conversations that need to be had. And I think this is something that I, I've talked about a little bit as well that I kind of want to harp on more here is players don't reveal hands enough. Uh, you know, they, they, you don't, you're allowed to just reveal your hand whenever you want. And I think when talking about, hey, you know, nobody's feeding my fish, but I think this player's about to win. Here's my hand. 
I think people should do that more often. And I think other players should ask that of like these Mr. Kimura players more often. Cause it's like, okay, yeah, it feels bad to make you draw a bunch of cards when you have eight unknowns in your hand or whatever. But if I lay down my hand and I'm like, all right, I'll show you these cards, but I'm not showing you whatever I draw off Mr. Kimura, but this is what you know. If you think this is enough to either win before they do or, you know, whatever, try to find you know, Basically you should be trying to find an ally. If you think this is enough for me to, you know, win or whatever, it's justification for you to not feed my fish and you think you can beat whatever they're going to do on their next turn. Sure. Fine. You know, whatever. Good luck. But here's my, here's my hand. The whole table knows it. And I think you should feed me because I don't think this is enough for even me to get another untapped, much less you. And that kind of, that kind of stuff is, I just don't see happen enough. Maybe it's too punishing to reveal your hand, but like you basically get your hand revealed with stuff like the taxi probe anyway. It never really seems to matter that much. And I think it would be an important piece of like goodwill that is like tangible and real, not just words. And also is like, has real political power because you are showing them, oh, I don't just have a kill rolled up. Oh, I don't just have so much interaction. I'm trying to sandbag. You can do stuff like that and be honest and be labeled the good guy. And then maybe you get people to start feeding you and then it should snowball from there. Once they start feeding you, they should keep feeding you. As long as you don't draw poorly, you should at least have a shot in that game that you might not otherwise have had a shot if, if you just let these table continue to play conservatively. Yeah, for sure. I think this is always a weird thing for me because I'm someone who just is really against all the political discussions and stuff, but it is kind of where I'm at now where like the Rhystic and the Remora players, like you need to help me draw cards. I don't have anything. It's like, okay, show me what your hand is prove then. It. Prove it. <laughs> yeah. Cause like, it's like, I'm not, I don't, case, I don't... Prove it. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's like, Sure, you might not have, um, like, you have, like, one piece of interaction, but it's like, if I see that you're just trying to get more pieces so that you can then win on your turn because you just happen to have Breach, LED, and uh, Brain Freeze in your hand, uh, I'm a little less inclined to want to work with you. But I do think it can be helpful because there's also plenty of times where, like, this happens all the time when I play with uh, a Shawnee, um, you know, Jamaica do for playing with power, where I have, like, 15 cards in hand, and he's just like, you're sandbagging. Like I, I, I'm not gonna. Like we're done. Like I'm just gonna concede. Like I have the mind break trap, but I'm not casting it. You have 15 cards, and I'm like, dude. Like here's my hand. Like I don't know what yeah. to tell you. Here's my hand. Like, <laughs> I got seven. Seven lands. Uh, I do have a dock side. I guess that's scary. But other than that, like there's nothing really here. <laughs> like, yeah, there's nothing going on. Yeah, yeah. It's like I'm fine with dying. Like I get it. If you don't, if you don't want to believe me, but like here's the cards in my hand. Like I, I have them face up. If you want to see if this game goes on longer, cool. If you think what I have is scary. Uh, sure, but like, here's the information I'm working with, and it definitely can help sometimes. Like, there's other times where people are just like, yeah, like screw it. Like, even if you don't have the win now, you'll draw into it. But I do think that can go a long way, especially in these higher stakes tournament games, because there are plenty of times where I have 10, 15 cards in hand, and I don't have an answer to the win on the stack, and I also don't have my own win. Like, that happens fairly often, especially if it was like a turn one Mystic or Ristic. It's like, sure, a bunch of people cast a bunch of stuff. And it gets back to my turn. And I have twelve cards in hand. It doesn't mean I have a win. I have like one, three mana in play, <laughs> at most, or and things like that. So it, I definitely think that can help um, some of these situations and alleviate some of the burden from these Mystic and Ristic players. Because there's definitely a lot of people who are like, "Oh, you drew ten cards. I'm fine with just losing," and that might be giving some stock to these Bardu and like Junless. But I do think a lot of it is just playing around the fact there's not that many free counter spells. Like we keep we we kind of overvalue the fact it's like oh they have force of will it's like this isn't legacy or vintage or like these other formats like they have one force of will on their deck that's it there isn't multiple copies and also that's four copies in a 60 card deck versus one copy in a 100 card deck 
and people need to start doing that math a little bit more before they assume someone with 15 cards is just sandbagging or things along those lines. Yeah, and, and emotions come into play there too, right? Where you're talking about, yeah. uh, you know, how many times have you gotten forced and then the next player right after you wins because that was the last piece of interaction. You just feel like egg on your face. You know, a lot of times the cadence was first person to attempt a win loses, the second person that attempts a win wins. That was kind of like the saying, the adage in uh, the CDH community when I was in. And I, I think emotions come into play there too as well, where people end up either playing too conservatively because they don't feel like enough interaction's been used for them to justify trying to win. Um, and so they're not really willing to try to make people have it because it feels so bad to just let the player after you win. You feel like you threw and you just feel like, uh, you know, it feels so bad. And these, these emotions have such an impact on the way people play in tournaments when there's stuff on the line that, you know, people do play overly scared. And if you're willing to show up and jam, that's going to be worth quite a bit. I mean, even look at me. Whenever you're playing Bergy, I make sure to hit you with Krom because I've died to your treasonous ogre one too many times. So toxic. <laughs> just so unreal toxic. I played a pod with Mike recently where he hit me with a tivot in the in a Bergy game, and I won with Treasus Ogre in the same game. I think he hit me like two or three times actually with Tivit that game. This was ridiculous. He was attacking me the oh whole time. God. Black decks in the pod and everything. He's hitting me with Tivit, and I just I still go on to win uh, with with Treasus Ogre, like because of Treasus Ogre. Yeah. Anyway, Treasus Ogre is just such all a horrible card. Model. All, all I can <laughs> say is Mike gets it. Mike gets it, and I'm He's tired so of your propaganda. So toxic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. I'm on a red. They're not. Yeah, they're the end on deck. Look, I don't even have trees this over. Yeah. Anyways, that's uh, <laughs> that's that. I, I think basically the the TLDR on this is I think you should really assess how your plan for winning the game is in your deck, how it corresponds with your plan to politic or not politic, and that's something that I don't think we've talked about at all really, and something that matters. And something that increasingly matters. And I think I personally plan to start, like, maybe attempting to make some more deals. Like, it's kind of free to do. But, like, spots where it's like, all right, I don't really have a lot. I'm going to be honest with you, the, the Mystic Remora player that is at my table in this pod right now. I don't have a lot to keep the table from dying and keep myself from getting another turn after this. And I, frankly, need to develop my mana if I want to be able to do anything. Uh, if you'll reveal your hand, or even if you'll just reveal you know, whatever, that you have no interaction somehow, something like that. Like, if you reveal your hand, I'll feed you three or four cards. Just develop it. If you do not do that, I will not. And make good on that. Make good on that. If, if, if they don't reveal their hand, all right, you've got it covered. Pass. If, if they do, it's just like, okay, fine, here you go. Here's your four cards. Go. You know, that, and there's some risk there because if they have nothing, then the next players will be like, well, I don't think four cards is enough to find one of those force will effects, so I'm jamming. But, you know, maybe they find it, maybe they don't. I don't think it's going to punish you that much. And I think if anybody takes it, it's actually net good for both players involved in that deal. Like, I don't think that's a scam deal by any any stretch of the word, but maybe it is, and we'll see. But that's something I plan to try to incorporate more into the pods I play as kind of a direct result of some of the stuff that we're seeing um, as far as, you know, Marty Summer coming up and more people just trying to make them have it and jam through Mystics and Ristics and stuff like that. I, I think I want to... I want to start playing in such a way that the Mystic Heuristic players win more often than they are now in a tournament setting. And that may be kind of controversial of a thing to say to people that don't play that much tournament CDH. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> just have to wait and see at this point. We're, I'm really not sure where it's going to go or if it's going to be just CDH keeps getting faster and faster until there's something that really shakes up the format. But I'm curious to see how it goes and even just like the past six months, like I said, from Silicon to CCU, the West Coasters, they're starting to get the joke. And 
if um, these East Coast players, like I know there's a lot of Thrasios believers still, if you want to still hold on to that, bring it to a tournament and prove me wrong, because at this point, like I have lost all faith in the Thrasios stream. Like, I, if, if you're trying to play a Thrasios, hold up four mana, draw a Thrasios, like, good luck. Like, you're, you're dead. I, I can't even survive with my friggin' Armix Chrom deck. I was like, oh yeah, this is so cool, I get to kill some of their value engines and stuff. No, I'm dead. <laughs> That's been the story of my life. CCU, I played like ten games. I lost all of them, turn two or turn three. <laughs> Extremely fair. I, I'm not. I'm not much of a Thrasios believer either. Although I'm currently in the process of writing an article, kind of about where I see Thrasios mattering. Doing a lot of writing recently, and I think that's a great segue here into the wrap up on this episode. Uh, if people were to, for some strange reason, want to find you and talk to you about how wrong you are, and you should just pick up your Armix again, please don't give up hope. Where could they do all of those things? Uh, you can find me on Discord, um, MikeyJH72, so able to retain my name, which I'm very happy about with the nice. new Discord changes. Uh, the miscast Twitter is away, and then also at Catan uh, Enthusiast on Twitter. I misspelled Enthusiast, there's no N. Uh, Drake makes fun of me for it all the time, but I blame it on my dyslexia, so it's fine. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you got Hellenium Gaming, my uh, trusty secretary, who I guess has been on vacation for like eight months, so you know, give him some work to do absolutely and if you're looking to find me i'm doing quite a bit in the cdh space you can find me uh as part of the playing with power team you can find videos of me playing there you can find my articles over at commander's herald or on eminence gaming i have written for both and i think my pieces on both are both worth reading because i wrote them and of course you can find me on twitter if you're looking to just yell at me at viral underscore drake um, and you can find me on moxfield if you're looking for what i'm working on viral drake no underscore on moxfield i managed to not have to need the underscore there so um, yeah, uh, you can find me a bunch of places. You can talk to me a bunch of places. I don't really answer Discord DMs because I don't know they can get rabid sometimes. But uh, you know, I, I'm Viral Drake on there as well. Got no underscore as well. Got my little reward for joining this, this hell site in 2017. Now, uh, now I get my username. Yay! Finally, a payoff. And that is about it. This is Marty Summer. Thanks.